Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. Dear Raya, I am so angry. That would be the first line. And everything in that book would be about things that piss me off. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. Before we do begin, we wanted to take the time out to address a couple of concerns. First, last week's episode and today's episode were recorded before the government lockdown. So please do know that we are social distancing and self-isolating too. Second thing we'd like to address is the topic of death. Yes, we don't shy away from it and neither should you, but that's not for us to decide. However, we are very open to changing our approach, but just let us know your reason as to why we should, because death shouldn't be a taboo subject and I think the more open and transparent we are with the conversation, the easier it is to process. That is one of the many reasons as to why we start talking about death. With that being said, let's introduce our guest today. In today's episode, Rhea El Salahi, journalist and broadcaster who's worked for the BBC and This American Life, to name but a few. She talks about how she became a journalist, but more specifically why she became a journalist. As we mentioned, we do start every conversation talking about death. But if this does trigger you, then please do fast forward to around the one and a half minute mark straight after this intro. And before we do forget, follow us on social media. It's at Blackticulate. But most importantly, please subscribe to this podcast because it really does help us grow. You guys, as always, are the best. Please do stay safe and we'll see you on the other side. Bye. So, Raya, welcome. Thank you. Am I close enough to the mic? Yeah. Good. I do know, or you have told me that you're a fan. I am a huge fan well, of the series, stop yeah. It. Stop saying huge. Uh, <laughs> but I'll take it. So, you know how we always start? I do, and I don't know why. You, why do you start with death? Because I think it often informs the way we live, but also the fact that we are doing a sort of, this is your life in our own unique way. So, dare I say, and God forbid, but if you were to die... This might be a nice sort of, oh, here's a legacy podcast. God, I better watch what I say in that case. No, far from. <laughs> so, yeah, death. Not a fan. Okay. <laughs> not a huge fan. It's not my favourite thing on the list of things that I like. Do you think about it? I increasingly think about it, actually. Um, I spent a lot of my 20s not thinking about it and living life in a really carefree way. And in recent years, you know, you hit your 30s, you get a little bit older, and it does change the way you live. It's absolutely changed my outlook on life. It has changed yours. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, gives me, it gives me a timeline. I think my 20s, I lived life thinking that everything would last forever and that whatever's happening now doesn't really matter because, you know, I'll be around forever. There's something beautiful about that. There's something really um, I miss about being the kind of person that can go into spaces and just be like, ah, whatever happens, happens. Because yeah. there's something quite limiting about knowing that death is inevitable. And there's something about being young and being carefree, which actually there's a lot of beauty in. And I, I do miss that, but I don't think once you've lost it, you can ever get it back. Well, let's get into your life. First chapter, that's zero to 10. Zero to 10, so... So who was Raya? Yeah, where... Tell us about growing up and stuff. We grew up, me and my family grew up in the Middle East. So we were living in Qatar, a place people call Qatar. They pronounce it wrong. Um, in a place called Doha, 
which is now pretty well known for the World Cup and for being this really wealthy, incredible um, kind of mini Dubai. But actually, mm. back then when we were kids, it wasn't that kind of place at all. When you say we. So it was me, my mum and my dad, my two older brothers and my younger sister. And so we all lived in this sunshine life in the Middle East, in the midst of the Gulf War, in the midst of my dad actually being exiled at the time, in the midst of my mum being the only Jewish person that we knew in this place that actually is probably quite dangerous to be a Jew. I mean, it's nuts. When I think about it as an adult now, I think the fact that my childhood was so bright and sunny and all I think about is playing out in the sunshine of um, guava trees, of being on the beach and living this incredibly carefree life. And then I think about it as an adult on the backdrop of what was happening actually in my parents' lives and current affairs in that part of the world. It's nuts that we were so unaware of it. Talking about memories and fun memories specifically... You actually wrote a northern Sudanese folk tale called Fatima the Beautiful. Tell me about that. I hadn't thought about that story until you asked me about stories that stick. So in northern Sudanese culture, there is a tradition of storytelling, but it's oral storytelling communally. So you'll have an elderly person in the family, usually a grandmother, it's usually women, who every night at bedtime will get together a group of kids. It's not just you and your family, it's a community. And they'll tell stories that have cliffhangers and they're stories that are supposed to get kids to go to bed. But there's a really beautiful tradition that they get kids to call out. So the children get to name the characters and the children get to make the sound effects and really play a part. It's theatrical. So Fatima the Beautiful and Hassan the Clever, that's the, the full name of the story and it's in Arabic. The idea behind the story is there's this brother and sister and they live in this house and they're absolutely devoted to each other, best of friends. When the girl, daughter Fatima the Beautiful, cries, it rains and when she smiles, pearls come out of her mouth. That's how precious she is. She hears about this beautiful bird that when it sings, it makes the sunshine and she asks the brother to get it for her. And the story is essentially him climbing over mountains, fighting through forests to get this bird from this ogre. And the story has him riding a horse. And the thing that always sticks in my mind is my dad would make the sound of the horse. So he'd say, karaba, 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 which is not what we'd say in English. We'd say gallop, right? But in Sudan, that's the noise they make for horses. That sound sticks with me whenever I think about my dad and whenever I think about being a kid. That noise of sitting there with my brothers and my sisters and my nephews and my nieces and my cousins and whoever, all the kids around, doing that noise with him. Karaba, 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 karaba. That sounds fantastic. You do speak with such a big smile when you mention your father. Why was he exiled? He's an artist and he was quite politically outspoken in Sudan and he was falsely accused of trying to overthrow the government and put in prison for a time with no trial and no idea if he'd ever get out. And he somehow managed to get out. And they said to him, look, we're going to put you on house arrest. So you're allowed out of prison, but you have to stay where you are. And he said, yeah, 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 no, that's fine. I understand. I'll stay. And the second the guards left, he got his belongings together and got their hell out of there. So that's an artist. That's an artist. What, what kind of artist? So he... Apart from, you know... Doing coops and stuff in government and just... <laughs> Apart from causing jeans. trouble, yeah. yeah. He's, he's my jailbird. Um, so my dad does a form of art which is known as African modernism. And he, for many years, 
the art was the thing that he had to do on the side because it was a form of art that wasn't recognized or appreciated. As often, I think anyone with any links to particularly African and Caribbean can appreciate a lot of our art forms and our history and our storytelling is considered often in the West second rate. And I'm so pleased that that's changing. I think it really is changing. My dad, a few years ago, became the first African artist to have a major exhibition at the Tate. And he's getting that recognition that he absolutely deserves. And I'm so glad that he is. But Congrats to him. Yeah, I know, right? I'm so Big proud of dad. him. Big up, Dad. Really, really proud of him. Um, I can't even remember the question that you asked me to get well, me into that. But I... No, I, I guess I was just wondering <laughs> what your parents did and, you know, what kind of artist your dad is and what your mum did. Because they met here. And I'm just curious to know whether or not the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree with you. So my mum, yeah, my mum was in in publishing. Ah. Um, and so books were always a part of our household. And the sort of publishing that she specialised in was African books. So she travelled a lot and she would bring books into our household that I think particularly a lot of kids with a white mum would never have access to. Mm. That, you know, traditionally it would be the African dad or whichever parent is non-British that would bring those sort of books in. My mum was in that world and so we'd have books and people in our household who through my dad's art and through my mum's books who were great thinkers and it's kind of one of the things that I love most about my upbringing is that we would be introduced to people from all over with very different views and I think that's so important. Yeah 100%. Your parents seem like superheroes especially at this decade. Oh they'll be pleased to hear that. At this stage, you are still in Qatar? Qatar. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no one pronounces yeah, it right. No one does. Qatar. Qatar, exactly. Qatar, gotcha. So I'm assuming it's your teens when you guys all emigrated to the UK. So when I was four or five in, um, I don't want to give my age away, but 1991, the Gulf War kicked off. Right. And at this point, my dad was exiled from Sudan, but he wasn't a British citizen. And me and my siblings, my mum obviously were. And the message was out that Brits had to leave, that you had to get out of the country. It wasn't safe. So my mum gets us out and my dad can't come. And so he stayed in Qatar until I was 12. And so from the age of about four or five to 12, we lived this weird dual life where we lived partly in London, partly in Oxford, where we then moved, and also partly in Qatar. So we travel around a lot. What was school like? Did you not have a base space? So school predominantly was in Oxford and it was the weirdest experience ever because we come from this country where, like I say, we were really shielded. And I got to school and I remember this vividly. I remember sitting in an assembly and me and an older brother were in the same school at the time. And I remember this board being pulled out in the front of the class. There was a map on the board and they said, this is where there's a war. And then made me and my brother stand up and said, and they've come from that country here. I remember having this moment of absolute panic of, hold on, but my dad's still there. And I didn't know there was a war. I didn't know that's why we'd left. So it was a really weird baptism of fire coming to the UK and suddenly realising that not everyone had lives like ours and lived lives like ours. Did and that, that actually, I didn't really understand the life that I'd lived either. Did that make you angry at your mum or, or your parents for shielding you? That's a really interesting question. No, I actually really appreciated that they did because there must have been some very, very difficult times in the Middle East when we were kids. And I think had we been, you know, as kids, you can't really fully grasp the complexities of things. And so I think my parents shielding us from that was the right thing to do and I really appreciated them from doing it because all I have are happy memories of that period. So let's uh, get into your next chapter where I guess you start becoming less shielded. We're now in secondary school, college and then slightly beginnings of university.
11 to 20. Who was Raya then? Oh, trouble. Where are you? <laughs> I come Why? from this, this um, household that was, you know, my dad was a Muslim. We grew up in a Muslim culture. Um, my mum was Jewish and I knew about her culture and we absolutely observed the, the cultural holidays. So we would celebrate Eid, we'd celebrate Christmas, we'd celebrate Hanukkah. And as a child, that just felt normal. I thought everyone did that. And it wasn't really till I was a little bit older at school, started to realise how different that was to everyone else. And like most kids, got to that stage as a teenager where it suddenly started to feel as though, why would you do this? Why would you bring us up here? Why would we come to this like dead city? I, I mean, to this day, the city that we grew up in, we, you know, we left this incredible sunshine. We were based in Hackney. Before that, we have this house in Hackney. And my mum moves us to Oxford. And so I, I had a lot of anger in my teens. And also that I went to a school that was predominantly white. And so I was the only non-white kid in my class. I had to deal with a lot of people, teachers included, asking stupid questions, saying stupid things, not from a place of, I think, any negativity, but just ignorance because yeah. they hadn't lived as global lives as we had lived. Question. Where do you call home now? Um, London is home. That idea of where are you from has always I've always struggled with because there's there's not a clear answer to that. How can you say you're from London when your family live in Sudan? How can you say you're a Muslim when your mum's a Jew? How can you you know label yourself? It's just not that simple. And I really struggled with that as a teenager. As an adult, I've got much more comfortable. Actually, I love it. I think it's it, there's a real power in it. But as a teenager, yeah, it was tough, really tough. I'm just always curious about those who are. Mixed. They say nothing's lost, but everything's gained. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Insofar as expression. Yeah. Do you agree with that or do you no. feel displaced? Not at all. I don't feel either of those things. I think there's a misunderstanding about people that come from any sort of mixed heritage. And I just want to get it right. If you sure, have. Please. Um, so the idea that you can be one thing, I don't agree with anyway. But in the way that we see mixed race heritage in this country, in this day and age, we see it as two halves of something. And I think that's twisted. I think it's something completely different. I'm not half Sudanese and half Russian, Jewish, English, weird mix. I'm whole something completely different. Um, I think it's that box ticking thing though. It's so much easier when you can say someone is Jamaican and that's it. And that the box ticking exercise is only useful to us from the outside. It's actually probably not very useful for the individual. No, not at all. I'll give you a good example. When I was a kid, we went to Sudan once and I always bemoaned the fact, particularly through my, you know, age 11 to 20, that I had no links to that part of my identity at all because my dad had been exiled. So as an adult, I made a conscious decision that I was going to go to Sudan with my dad and see if there was a sense of roots, of something that I could connect to that would mean that I'd want to live there. So I get to Sudan, bear in mind my Arabic is really, really bad. And I get with my cousins and I say, look, show me around, show me what you do, like how you spend your time. They say, I will take you to the mall. My dad says to me before we go, make sure you cover your hair. And I'm a feminist and I'm not religious at all. And that's not something that I'm willing to do. So I said, no, I'm not doing that. My dad said, you're going to get whipped in the street if you don't do this. And I said, well, let them whip me. We'll see what happens. So my cousins are already thinking, great, we've got to look after this idiot who won't even cover her hair, that can't speak the language. What are we going to do? So I'm heading to the mall with my cousin. And this is one of the few cousins that speaks a little bit of English. And we're walking around and I'm thinking, people are so nice. And I say to her, no one's whipping me. People are really nice here. Well, what's my dad talking about? And she turns to me and she says, that's because you don't understand what they're saying about you. Do you think of yourself as Sudanese? And I said, yeah, of course I am. And she responds, to us, you're white. 
And it was such kind of a grounder for me that it kind of dragged me straight back to that sense of you think that you're going to go somewhere and suddenly like this is my place and I fit in and this is all me. And you realize that that kind of box ticking exercise that you think in your head, that you, it becomes ingrained that you think you can somehow kind of jump back into. You can't. It's not possible. So what were you thinking during this decade, especially from a career perspective? Because, well, that's why you're here. I said that I was trouble in that period and I yeah. was absolute trouble. I mean, I gave my mum absolute hell. And I think a lot of that was because if you're a kid with a parent that looks very different to you, you know, I look very obviously non-white. My mum looks like a white woman. You can't help but have questions around your hair or the fact that you tan differently or the fact that people behave towards you very differently. Um, and that happened a lot throughout school. I, I had a really hard time in school for that reason. I think there was lots of assumptions about who you'd be and what you'd be good at. And I mean, perfect example, sports and music. You know, I liked both of those subjects, but they weren't the things that I excelled at. And yet I'd get into school and the first thing that I'd be told was, oh, I bet you're good at singing. I bet you've got good rhythm. I mean, I have. <laughs> I can't sing, but I've got rhythm, if I do say so myself. But the assumption that that's what I'd be good at, not the English, not the creativity. But what were you thinking? I mean, insofar as career-wise, were your parents pushing you to be? Um, do you know, it's so funny because there's this kind of very well-treaded path with a lot of people of African heritage talking about their parents saying there are specific jobs that are acceptable for you. You can be a lawyer, a doctor or whatever. And my dad was an artist. And so the idea that you could be creative and that could be a career path was always something that was a given in my household. So when you have a parent who is a creative, particularly when that parent is a black parent in a white country, predominantly white country, and how their expression of art isn't valued, that they can't necessarily make a career out of that. That's tough. And as much as there's definitely a route in creativity that you can take, there is also a limitation to how are you going to feed yourself and clothe yourself and have a house if the one thing that you love to do and you're good at, you can't afford to do. It's the hard one. Can I ask a personal question? Are you wealthy? Are you middle class? What class system would you say you were in? Yeah, I definitely call myself middle class. Definitely. Um, both my parents went to university. I went to university. I definitely grew up in a comfortable, you know, I say comfortable, there were things going on, but financially, yeah, compared to a lot of my friends, um, I can't shy away from the fact that one of the very differences between my generation and perhaps my parents' generation is that you can be black and middle class and that's not a surprise. Yeah, what are you thinking, career? So I went into school and I hated school with a passion. It wasn't for me at all. I would constantly get into trouble. I just didn't have anyone that I saw that looked like me, that I could relate to, that talked about things that I cared about. Um, when you say trouble, because you mentioned that enough times, sorry yeah. I'm interjecting on this, but this right. is a conversation. Do you want me to give you some, some examples? Yeah, will you, will you fight? Yeah, give me examples. Um, so I didn't like being told what to do. I still don't. I struggled with having to do that kind of factory education where you sit down and you're doing a to Z and, and you're just expected to do it. I couldn't read until I was seven. I, I wasn't able to read and I still to this day I've never been tested but I think I'm probably dyslexic and I just struggled like school was not for me. I didn't excel. I don't think it helped me flourish. I also never had a black teacher. I never had a mixed teacher. I never had anyone that, that looked in any way like me and so I went to school and I would kick back against everything. I'd get in trouble all the time. I'd talk too much. I would skive off school and get caught numerous times 
if you look at any report card of me as a kid, I'm, I'm almost certain every single one will say if she just stopped talking so much and applied herself, she could, you know, be better and do something. Oh, isn't that ironic? Yeah, I made a career out of talking. Yeah. It's really ironic. But isn't it also the responsibility potentially of a tutor to see the potential and what a child does in a way? If yeah. you're continuously talking, then perhaps look at pushing them into careers, which, you know, again, you mentioned ironic is what you actually end up doing anyway. Mm. Yeah, there's something to be said about do, that. Do you know, for me, the thing about reporting, the thing about sociology, the thing about, you know, a lot of that kind of line of work, the thing that kind of brought it all together for me was identity. Like I was always interested in the fact that I had this very clear sense of who I was. I came to England and suddenly who I was was not who I wanted to be and no one else was like that. And I didn't see myself reflected anywhere and I did a lot of soul searching and trying to kind of figure out where I fit in and, and all the rest of it. But throughout this conversation, I don't know if you're actually acutely aware of it, you do speak about race a lot. Yeah. You know, almost as... I'll tell you... That's okay. No, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a good reason for that. I think... One of the things that I did when I came to this country and felt quite inhibited by lots of the questions that were asked about me was what I think a lot of non-white kids in very white environments do, which is try to shy away from, in my case, black identity. That I quite early on wouldn't talk about the fact that my dad was a Muslim and that we ate different food at home and all these things to do with non-white identity for me about North African identity, about being Sudanese. I just wouldn't talk about and when I got a little bit older and got more defiant and more sure about who I was and that it wasn't something to be embarrassed or ashamed of, I've almost corrected that my entire career by one of the first jobs I got was working for the BBC presenting a show for black communities in Nottingham. Yeah, I do want to, we will join the dots, I do want to get into that. But the only reason why I actually brought that up is because at this stage and what I'm trying to establish is where you're thinking career-wise. Mm. But every time you are answering, and this is now pushback for you and I. Go for it. It seems like you keep on Bring going back, back to, to, you know, you being fundamentally isolated and yeah. feeling, again, at a loss in a sense. But you're finding yourself, mm. as you've said. So I'm asking, what what's this thinking what's of what you wanted to do, you know? So I went into... I hope that's... So yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. Okay. And it's really true. It's a really good observation because it kind of gets to the crux of what happened at that stage in my life that I went to sick form and I decided to do sociology because the first day of a class one of the teachers gave us a handout and it had a whole load of things that sounded like weird how do I even describe this she gave us a piece of paper and it said on it things like you go into a room and you sit down and you put your head under an oven and then you get up and you leave where in the world or the galaxy do you think this person is from and all these kids wrote Mars or Venus and I was like oh, it's like in the hairdressers when you sit down and you have the thing on. So I wrote England. And this teacher then fed back and was like, yeah, this is all things that we do in this country that I'm talking about in a different way so that you get a sense of cultural relativism, of the fact that you what you think is normal is not what everyone else thinks is normal. And it stuck with me and it made me want to do something in my life that was linked to that career. And at first that felt like it was social work. So I left school and I went and did a gap year with a youth homeless shelter up in the north of England thinking that was the the route to go and I'm working in this homeless shelter for young people and the first night this kid comes in who is off her face she's clearly on something and these kids are all under 16 and she slits her wrists and tries to kill herself and I walk in a room and there's this girl covered in blood covered and more blood than I'd ever seen in my life and I'm fresh out of school 
thinking, I want to go into social work so I can help people and walk in and, and patch this girl up and call an ambulance and go with her and make sure she's okay. And luckily at that point she was fine. I had a lot of time to spend with this girl and she told me a bit about her life and the fact that she'd had this horrific upbringing and that she didn't see the point in living. What's the point? No one cares. And I quickly realised two things. One, I could not make a difference to her life. I could be there to help her patch up the wounds on her wrist, but I couldn't make a real difference to her life. And two, I realised that I wasn't strong enough for social work, that I wasn't strong enough to go into that setting and not be affected by it and be able to still be... Um, to still be helpful, to still think I can make a change. If straight away at the first hurdle, my first thought was, I can't make a difference to your life. I'm not the right person for this job. But what had happened really formed my idea that I want to tell stories about things like this. I want to give a platform and help give a platform to stories that I never would have heard of this like awful life this girl had lived. I never would have heard about that had I not been in that setting. So that was definitely what pushed me towards journalism as opposed to social work, an inability to actually make a difference and feeling like there's a different way to do it. Well, that actually is lovely because it does tie us up into your third chapter and where we find you and what you do today. The pictures we're painting and what I'm getting in this chapter now, uni, is you wanted to do something in journalism and specifically tell the stories that many people wouldn't necessarily have access to. So, Raya, tell me, I mean, like, how did you go about doing this? And What happened next? Yeah. So, at university, I studied sociology. I went to Nottingham. And one of the first things that I did when I was there was get involved with a community radio station called Kemet. And it was this radio station in this part of Nottingham that's renowned for traditionally having been the centre of a lot of gun battles. And so, it was this area that was labelled a hard-to-reach area. And I hate that term, but it was what it was described as academically at the university. So I go to this area and this area is predominantly African-Caribbean. Surprise, surprise, it's called Hard to Reach and it's black. And they had this radio station. They were predominantly music and entertainment, but they also had a lot of incredible minds who were telling stories about what life was like in their experience in that part of the city. So I got involved with this radio station all the way through university. I then got a job there and was doing this show. Raya El Salihi taking you through Kind of discussion show about issues, really small, hyper stories about, you know, the bin collections in, like in Nottingham. Embedded in this so-called hard-to-reach community. Somebody from the BBC happened to listen to it and said they wanted someone to tell those sorts of stories about everyday black experience on the BBC just so happened that I was really lucky. The timing worked. Somebody believed in me and gave me that opportunity. I'm Raya. On my weekly radio show, I explore race and identity in Britain. I mean, it, I, I pinch myself now because I think it was just luck. It was pure luck that I was there at the right time and that it was able to happen. But it meant that I went from being this university kid, not quite sure what direction I was going to go in, but not sure that I wanted to do sociology. So having the platform of a BBC show and the word BBC presenter under my name, and that opened doors like nothing else. I wonder if there's any learnings to be had from... for, for those who potentially also might want to be a journalist or presenting on the radio from what you did. Because so, yeah, what, what can you take from... Yeah, yeah, what, what can you take or you, teach? You know, so the thing for me, and I talked about this with you, about feeling quite angry, quite isolated a lot of the time, and I think there's real power in anger. I think it's why black Twitter is 
such a phenomenon because that anger when it's channeled is like nothing else and there's something about going into journalism with an anger about not being listened to about not seeing yourself reflected about knowing that what you have to say and the art you love and the shows you watch and the books you read are valuable and knowing that the reason they're not viewed as valuable is not because they're not it's because the person making that decision just isn't of your world I think for anyone that wants to go into any sort of journalism but particularly broadcast there is no substitute for the things that make you angry and wanting to tell other people about why it matters it's why podcasts like this are so successful because we've all I mean I don't know how much I can swear but we're all pissed off by stuff and actually that authenticity of being pissed off and having a platform to share that we all want to listen to it like I, I like angry people I associate with them. I, I can absolutely understand where they're coming from. Well, let's mellow you out a little bit then, if that's possible. <laughs> See if you can try. Yeah, I'll try. What is the dream? What is the goal for you? Long form documentary current affairs content is what I love to make. And much like my dad's experience, I quickly learned that it's not something that for many people you can make a full time career out of. It's a passion project. So in the early stages, it was what I thought my career was going to walk straight into. And I realised pretty quickly, there's a reason that there's only a few Louis Theroux's and, you know, Reggie Yates and whatever, because it's, it's a difficult job to make your full-time thing. However, I've learned to have a job that's still in journalism, that still gets to tell my stories and still gets to be bothered by stuff and give stuff a platform and be creative. And alongside that, have things that I'm really passionately angry about and that I want to turn into some sort of documentary. I've been really lucky that I've done that for the BBC, um, for London Live, for This American Life, to tell stories alongside my day job that are things I'm passionate about. Now I hear that, Raya. One of the things I'm curious to know is you've had opportunities and you've even alluded to being lucky, but I'm assuming you're not where you want to be yet. Why aren't you where you want to be? I don't think anyone is. Is anyone where they want to be? I think once you're where you want to be, what's next? Retire and be Thanos. Just, you know, gardening. I'm not where I want to be career-wise. And I don't think I ever will be because there are always more stories to tell. There have absolutely been peaks in my career where it's felt like nothing else. Being able to tell a story and give it a platform and actually have eyes or ears on it. Um, there's no feeling like it, as I'm sure you know, somebody doing a podcast. When what you say resonates with people it ticks a box inside that nothing else does. And I want to continue doing that. And I don't think I'll ever be able to say, yep, I've done enough of that now. Yeah, no, I hear that. And please don't stop. Selfishly, we want to continuously hear and see your stories being told. You have written, and this is the last prompt, anything by Chimamanda Ngozi Adishi. Oh, I love her. But if you had to pick one, it would be Americana. Yeah. Why did this story or this book, I guess, make an impact or have an impact on you? There's so much about that book that's good. I mean, besides from her just being an incredible writer, writer, she tells stories like no one else. So for anyone that hasn't read Americana, this is a story about a woman who is born in Nigeria and then moves to the US for university and then has this life. And it's also kind of alongside this story of her life where she ends up writing a really successful blog about being black in America as a non-American but the thing I loved about this book specifically is that it spoke to me about so many issues to do with identity and to do with this idea that there is one um, 
one idea of being black or one way to be a woman or one way to be a Nigerian in, in that example. It's just not as simple as that. There's so many grey areas. Um, that book spoke to me about validating not fitting in as being okay. Yeah, I love that. If there was one book you can gift, what book would it be? That's such a difficult question to answer. Do you know what I think I'd do? I'd give a notebook, a notebook that was empty. That sounds so wanky, but I would. I'd give a, a notebook to people and I'd say, fill it with whatever you want to fill it with because whatever story you've got to tell is important and worth being written down. I'm going to role play off that. So I've given you this notebook. Give me your first opening paragraph or sentence. You write into yourself. Dear Rhea. Dear Rhea, I am so angry. That would be the first line. And everything in that book would be about things that piss me off. Well, Ray, has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> On that note, get out of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks uh, for having me. No, how can the listeners find you on the World Wide Web? And if or when they do, is there anything you'd like them to do? You can find me on on everything, on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on, on Snapchat or any of those things. So I feel like I'm just a generation too old for it. Sorry, probably for the best. And you'll find me, just search Raya. There's not many of us, um, R-E-Y-A. Um, what would I like you to do if you get in touch? Just talk to me, say hey, say what you agree with and you don't agree with. I love having discussions. So if you heard anything in this that you didn't like, tell me about it. Let's get into it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And guys, as always, do rate, review, share, etc, etc. Subscribe, most importantly, because then you get reminded. I know I'm not supposed to drop in on that, but I subscribe. No, no, and I love it because I whenever. find out about all these fascinating people. Subscribe, people. Thank you very much. So <laughs> take care. Bye. Today's episode was produced by Ade Bambala. Sound designed by Chris Orise. And if you'd like to be featured on Stories That Stick, then please do get in touch.